Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratham Data. Charles' History of England, by Charles Dickens, read to you by Pratham Data. This is where we left off last time. Between 1429 and 1431, a young French girl called Joanne de led by visions from God, acting as God's messenger to bring back the Dauphin into the French throne as Charles VII, fought against the Burgundian and the English forces. But, as it happens, she was found guilty of sorcery and burned at the stake in 1431. She was only 19 years old. If you get a chance, you can visit the northeastern part of France, a region called Vosges, and there there's a place called Domremy, called Domremy to Bruxelles, after Joan of Arc, and that is where she was supposed to be born. So there we stand, and now. Chapter 22, England under Henry VI, part the third. Bad deeds seldom prosper, happily for mankind, and the English cause gained no advantage from the cruel death of Joan of Arc. For a long time, the war went heavily on. The Duke of Bedford died, the alliance with the Duke of Burgundy was broken, and Lord Talbot became a great general on the English side in France. But two of the consequences of wars are famine, because the people cannot peacefully cultivate the crowns, and pestilence, which comes of want, misery and suffering. Both these horrors broke out in both countries and lasted for two wretched years. Then the war went on again, and came by slow degrees to be so badly conducted by the English government that, within twenty years from the execution of the Maid of Orleans, of all the great French conquests, the town of Calais alone remained in English hands. While these victories and defeats were taking place in the course of time, many strange things happened at home. The young king, as he grew up, proved to be very unlike his great father and showed himself a miserable, puny creature. There was no harm in him. He had a great aversion to shedding blood, which was something, but he was a weak, silly, helpless young man and a mere shuttlecock to the great lordly battledoes about the court. Of these battledoes, Cardinal Beaufort, a relation of the king and the Duke of Gloucester, were at first the most powerful. The Duke of Gloucester had a wife, who was nonsensically accused of practising witchcraft to cause the king's death and lead to her husband's coming to the throne, he being the next heir. She was charged with having, by the help of a ridiculous old woman named Marjorie, who was called a witch, made a little waxen doll in the king's likeness and put it before a slow fire that it might gradually melt away. 
It was supposed in such cases that the death of the person whom the doll was made to present was sure to happen. Whether the Duchess was as ignorant as the rest of them and really did make such a doll with such an intention, I don't know. But even I know very well that she might have made a thousand dolls if she had been stupid enough and might have melted them all without hurting the king or anybody else. However, she was tried for it, and so was old Marjorie, and so was one of the Duke's chaplains, who was charged with having assisted them. Both he and Marjorie were put to death, and the Duchess, after being taken on foot and bearing a lighted candle three times round the city as a penance, was imprisoned for life. The Duke himself took all this pretty quietly and made as little stir about the matter as if he were rather glad to be rid of the Duchess. But he was not destined to keep himself out of trouble long. The royal shuttlecock being three and twenty, the battle does were very anxious to get him married. The Duke of Gloucester wanted him to marry a daughter in the court of Armagnac, but the Cardinal and the Earl of Suffolk were all for Margaret, the daughter of the King of Sicily, who they knew was a resolute, ambitious woman and would govern the King as she chose. To make friends with this lady, the Earl of Suffolk, who went over to arrange the match, consented to accept her for the King's wife without any fortune and even to give up two most valuable possessions England then had in France. So, the marriage was arranged on terms very advantageous to the lady and Lord Suffolk brought her to England and she was married at Westminster. On what pretence this Queen and her party charged the Duke of Gloucester with high treason within a couple of years, it is impossible to make out. The matter is so confused, but they pretended that the King's life was in danger and they took the Duke prisoner. A fortnight afterwards, he was found dead, in bed, they said and his body was shown to the people, and Lord Suffolk came in for the best part of his estates. You know by this time how strangely liable state prisoners were to sudden death. If Cardinal Beaufort had any hand in this matter, it did him no good, for he died within six weeks, thinking it very hard and curious at eighty years old, that he could not live to be Pope. This was the time when England had completed her loss of all her great French conquests. The people charged the loss principally upon the Earl of Suffolk, now a Duke, who had made those easy terms about the royal marriage and who, they believe, had even been bought by France. So he was impeached as a traitor on a great number of charges, but chiefly on accusations of having aided the French king and of having designed to make his own son king of England. The commons and the people being violent against him, the king was made, 
by his friends to interpose to save him by banishing him for five years and proroguing the parliament. The Duke had much ado to escape from a London mob, 2,000 strong, who lay in wait for him in St. Giles fields. But he got down to his own estates in Suffolk and sailed away from Ipswich. Sailing across the channel, he sent into Calais to know if he might land there, but they kept his boat and men in the harbour until an English ship carrying 150 men called the Nicholas of the Tower came alongside his little vessel and ordered him board. Welcome, traitor, as men say, was the captain's grim and not very respectful salutation. He was kept on board, a prisoner, for eight and forty hours, and then a small boat appeared rowing toward the ship. As this boat came nearer, it was seen to have in it a block rusty sword and an executioner in a black mask. The Duke was handed down into it, and there his head was cut off with six strokes of the rusty sword. Then the little boat rowed away to Dover Beach, where the body was cast out and left until the Duchess claimed it. By whom, high in authority, this murder was committed has never appeared. No one was ever punished for it. There now arose in Kent an Irishman who gave himself the name of Mortimer, but whose real name was Jack Kate. Jack, in imitation of Wat Tyler, though he was very different and inferior sort of man, addressed the Kentish men upon their wrongs, occasioned by the bad government of England, among so many battledoes and such a poor shuttlecock, and the Kentish men rose up to the number of twenty thousands. Their place of assembly was Blackheath, where, headed by Jack, they put forth two papers, which they called the Complaint of the Commons of Kent and the requests of the captain of the great assembly in Kent. They then retired to Sevenoaks. The royal army, coming up with them there, they beat it and killed their general. Then Jack dressed himself in the dead general's armour and led his men to London. Jack passed to the city from Southwark, over the bridge and entered it in triumph, giving the strictest order to his men not to plunder. Having made a show of his forces there, while the citizens looked on quietly, he went back into Southwark in good order and passed the night. Next day, he came back, having got hold in the meantime of Lord Say, an unpopular nobleman. Says Jack to the Lord Mayor and judges, will it be good to make a tribunal in Guildhall, and try me this nobleman. The code being hastily made, he was found guilty, and Jack and his men cut his head off in Cornwall. They also cut off the head of his son-in-law, and then went back in good order to Southwark again. But 
although the citizens could bear the beheading of an unpopular lord, they could not bear to have their houses pillaged. As it did so happen that Jack, after dinner, perhaps he had drunk a little too much, began to plunder the house where he lodged, upon which, of course, his men began to imitate him. Wherefore, the Londoners took counsel with Lord Scales, who had a thousand soldiers in the tower, and defended London Bridge, and kept Jack and his people out. This advantage gained, it was resolved by divers great men to divide Jack's army in the old way, by making a great many promises on behalf of the state, that were never intended to be performed. This did divide them. Some of Jack's men saying that they ought to take the conditions which were offered, and others saying that they ought not, for they were only a snare, some going home at once, some staying where they were, and all doubting and quarrelling amongst themselves. Jack, who was in two minds about fighting or accepting a pardon, and who indeed did both, saw at last that there was nothing to expect from his men, and that it was very likely some of them would deliver him up and get a reward of a thousand marks, which was offered for his apprehension. So, after they had travelled and quarrelled all the way from Southwark to Blackheath, and from Blackheath to Rochester, he mounted a good horse and galloped away into Sussex. But there galloped after him on a better horse, one Alexander Iden, who came up with him, had a hard fight with him and killed him. Jack's head was set aloft on London Bridge, and the face looking towards Blackheath, where he had raised his flag, and Alexander Iden got the thousand marks. It is supposed by some that the Duke of York, who had been removed from a high post abroad through the Queen's influence and sent out of the way to govern Ireland, was at the bottom of this rising of Jack and his men because he wanted to trouble the government. He claimed, though not yet publicly, to have a better right to the throne than Henry of Lancaster, as one of the family of the Earl of March, whom Henry IV had set aside. Touching this claim, which, being through female relationship, was not according to the usual descent, it is enough to say that Henry IV was the free choice of the people and Parliament, and that his family had now reigned undisputed for 60 years. The memory of Henry of V was so famous and the English people loved it so much that the Duke of York's claim would, perhaps, never have been thought of. It would have been so hopeless, but for the unfortunate circumstance of the present kings, being by this time quite an idiot, and the country very ill-governed. These two circumstances gave the Duke of York a power he could not otherwise have had. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read.
Thank you.